Kids, welcome to a very exciting, very special, very interesting uh, episode of the B-Side for the film stage. As most of you know by now, here we talk about movie stars and sometimes movie makers. Not the films that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And today, as we've been doing more and more often and we love it, um, we're talking, uh, speaking with filmmakers, filmmakers. This time they're filmmakers, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Polcini, who you probably know, uh, they're real life couple who directs uh, the movies together. You probably know them and best write. from- And write sometimes. Yeah. You probably know them best for American Splendor from 2003, which was the hit out of Sundance that earned them an Oscar nomination for screenplay. Really put Paul Giamatti on the map. It's kind of the meta-textual look at Harvey Picar in his American Splendor comics. You know, Harvey Picar himself is in the movie. Uh, Paul Giamatti plays Picar. Picar's kind of main characters that were in his graphic novels, which became kind of cult famous. Um, they are uh, acted by actors and also are in the movie in different, in different ways. Um, and, and the other thing about P car, which I didn't even really fully know or was reminded when I rewatched this, he was a staple on Letterman in the late eighties, which is a part, a significant part of the movie as well, which is just interesting. And he had a kind of a falling out with Letterman on the air almost. And you can find that on YouTube. Maybe I'll put that, uh, a portion of that clip on in the article there of the kind of the one of the final letterman performances even though i believe he did come back eventually anyway um so that's what you probably know them from obviously that would not be a b-side in this case we were lucky enough connor and i to have both of them on for about 40 50 minutes and had a really great awesome very friendly conversation about they're truly lovely yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems just like people who, yeah, I mean, me, after the interview, me and Connor were like, we were, we were like, God, that just seems like the greatest life in the world, like living in Manhattan with your partner, making movies, just writing, directing episodes of Succession and Shameless on the side to pay the bills, <laughs> <and> like <laughs> figuring out the next thing. Um, so, you know, there are other movies which we do, we do kind of, we touch uh, all of them more or less throughout their career. They, they, they gained notice in the documentary world with Off the Menu, The Last Days of Chasens from the late 90s which they we talk about uh, a decent amount because that was a kind of a document of this famous Hollywood haunt, Hollywood hang out uh, for a lot of the stars uh, from yesteryear at that point called Chasen's. And they got access through a series of crazy events and really captured the, the final kind of days, as the title suggests, of that kind of Hollywood legendary place. And then we briefly talk about Wanderlust, which is a documentary they made that basically doesn't exist anymore for rights reasons, which we get into. We talk about the Nanny Diaries, which is fascinating in its own right, uh, just given the 
the development, the production, and then the kind of nightmarish post-production that happened thanks to the Harvey Weinstein element, which is not a surprise, but of course, something to lament. Uh, of course, uh, the extra man, super underrated movie they made with Kevin Klein and Paul Dano from around 2010 also was a Sundance movie, but kind of got lost in the shuffle, which is a shame. We talk a decent amount about that. Jonathan Ames script based on his book, who then went on to create bored to death among other things. So that was kind of right at the beginning of him popping in the film TV world. Cinema Verite, great HBO, uh, movie about, it's about the making of the famous documentary from the early 70s called An American Family on PBS about the Loud family, which a lot of people say was kind of the beginning of reality TV. Uh, we don't talk about Girl Most Likely, actually. That was the one we I don't think we ever even mentioned, which is the Kristen Wiig movie. Right. Um, and then briefly talk about 10,000 Saints. And then finally, their new movie, which is kind of the reason for the season, is, uh, as you're listening, available on Netflix to watch right now called Things Heard and Seen. I have a review up on the film stage of that film. I liked it. Um, we talk about it quite a bit. Um, it's a creepy thriller. It's a thriller that I kind of like more than most in that it's not the gore is less than the aesthetic and the kind of the tone and obviously it can be both but as a scaredy cat myself i prefer when it's <laughs> atmospheric and not and not a, i guess it's scaredy cat's not the right word right because i think for me the gore i think the word times, you're searching for is little bitch <laughs> no kidding um little little baby yeah no, um, <laughs> but but the gore for me i suppose when it's done right because kelly will always say to me like but you watch like these war movies and these action that's movies. That's a way. That's a way different thing. That like, yeah, it, yeah. That that's a different. But she's thing. not. I'm kind of but, more but she's, aligned but she's with not, you. Like, yeah. The yeah. the the atmospheric stuff is the stuff that's good. And then there is a you know obviously there's like an entertainment value in like the you know uh, in like the fun kill of it all. Right. If you're watching like a specific kind of horror movie, I suppose. Right. Like. Um, you know, like Kevin Bacon getting stabbed under the bed through the throat in in Friday the Thirteenth or something like that, where you're like, whoa, right? But like, well, but then, but then, for example, speaking of Kevin Bacon, a movie he's in much later in his career that I think perfectly encapsulates what I'm told, what we're talking about is Stir of Echoes. Right, 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 right. Which is the David Kep movie that got buried by Six Sense. We should talk uh, about that movie at some point. Great B-side. Yeah. David Kep, kind of an underrated director, very accomplished screenwriter, but has made some, has directed some pretty interesting movies. A lot of thrillers, actually. The Trigger Effect, Secret Window, um, which I know people feel different ways about Secret Window. I like Secret Window. I know that, you know... It, people think that's a lesser. It's uh, been year, I, It's been years since I've seen it. You, st you know, the all anybody remembers now is the you, John Turturro. Yeah, you, you stole, stole my story. story. You yeah, know, which I understand. But um, yeah, things heard and seen. Give it a look. I, I, it's a, it's a solid recommend by me. Um, I enjoyed it. Amanda Seyfried is the lead. James Norton plays her husband. Um, Natalia Dyer's in it. F. Murray Abraham's in it. Karen Allen's in it. Michael O'Keefe's in it. It's a nice little 
Bible cast. Is it weird that Karen Allen and F. Murray Abraham are like the biggest sells for me on that? Like, I like everybody else, but like, I'm I'm always down to just see F. Murray Abraham's face. Well, what's funny is so what's funny about F. Murray Abraham is obviously he's acted forever, right? You'll see him, you know, he he's in many many things. Obviously, still probably most famous for Amadeus, of course, as Salieri, but uh, but. He is in a show I really like that's on Apple TV Plus or whatever it's called, uh, Mythic Quest. Oh, is that which the is Rob McElhenney? The Rob McElhenney. Yeah. They, they make video games uh, show. Really good show. The second season drops soon, I think. And he's like the writer and he's like <laughs> a creep. He's like a creepy old guy character. Okay. And and it's a good it's a funny performance and watching um things heard and seen I was kind of chuckling to myself cuz he's playing like a more it's it's not the same character but I was like oh I like this older F Murray Abraham as like he can be comforting or creepy however he's turning the dial. You right. Know sure, sure. He does he does great work. Obviously he's an incredible actor so um not a surprise. But yeah. They their output is quite incredible. Um, it's quite underrated. They feel like actually in hindsight, and I suppose we knew this when we asked, but but even more so now, they they're perfect representations of the B side thing we're trying to get at. And and Robert Polcini, I believe, says as much. Yeah, <laughs> kind of when we we're talking to him, and um, their comfortability in their process and their like success and quote unquote failure and like what it means. We really like get into like what B sides mean, which I loved. And the other thing I loved is since me and Connor are both kind of from the Hudson Valley near the Hudson Valley, we actually dig into like how perfect it is to set a horror, a horror movie, movie there, yeah. in the Hudson Valley, 100%. which is where things heard and seen is set because like we talk about in the interview, it's truly a beautiful place that is feels very haunted in a very Bronte sisters type of a way, which I, I think I bring up in the interview and I think holds true. I think it's a very kind of atmospheric, weirdly old fashioned, you know, puritanical, I think is the better word. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah like what's the play about the, the crucible right there's a little bit of that right like yeah. there's a little bit of salem come you know it's drive it's, down, it's, I, it's drive kind down of, i-90 yeah it's kind of know? geographically when you start just getting wrapped up and i know it's not new england but it is just kind of when you start getting that feel of like new england folklore type uh type situation sleepy hollow and and all that um, right, sleepy hollow of course being the the most yeah, yeah. so connor would anything any final things before we we go over to the interview no this was uh like i said uh, the, the, both of them are charmers and were lovely to talk to so um listener i hope you enjoy hearing it as much as uh, as we did talking to them so enjoy today we're very excited to talk to a directing filmmaking duo writing and directing filmmaking duo um who have a movie as you are listening it is available to watch on netflix right now called things heard and seen uh starring amanda seyfried and um we have sherry springer berman and robert pulcini how are you guys doing very doing very well thanks we're good thanks 
Congrats on uh, the new movie, which I was lucky enough to watch uh, just yesterday as we're recording. And I think I'm reviewing for the film stage. It's so we're going to talk about, obviously, your career as a whole and and some of maybe the yeah the, the smaller movies kind of that obviously uh, for those who are listening, uh, for those who are listening, you know, these guys. They, for American Splendor was the huge Sundance movie. Was it 03? Was that, was it 03 yes. American Splendor? Yeah. And um, it, it just uh, obviously not a B-side, but I just, I do want to say before we talk about things heard and seen, I rewatched American Splendor uh, yesterday and I always liked the movie, but I was pretty young when I first watched it. And I remember th- being like, I I was like, oh, this is good, but but it was so loved. I feel like I was expecting it to be something even more or whatever. But I was very young, and rewatching it yesterday, I was like, man, this is great. And I I don't know what that says about just getting older. It's the like... disappointment of life that you need to really appreciate how big people are. It's so true. <laughs> I I I I literally, it's I was just watching, it. and it's also such. A, I mean, for those who haven't seen American Splendor, who who are listening, please seek it out. Um, it's about Harvey P. Carr. Uh, Paul G. Mighty plays uh, Harvey, but Harvey's also in it. It's a lot of, you know, there's mixed media elements. And we'll, 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 that's an aesthetic that comes back in your guys' career, which I'd love to talk about. But, yeah, I mean, quickly, once again, it's not a B-side, but what are what are any kind of standout memories from that moment in time? Obviously, the Sundance thing. It, it came out. You guys got an Oscar nomination. It was like – a real moment. I mean, it did very well. People, you know, saw it. And in a lot of ways, it kind of, in a way, it's one of those early, I mean, graphic novel adaptations that really kind of, it kind of, I think, showed you could adapt graphic novels that weren't necessarily, you know, about superheroes, you know what I mean? Or something like that. So what what are any kind of just memories from that time, I suppose? (laughs) Memories from that. We could do a whole podcast. No, 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 that's the thing. I know, it's a dangerous question. It was the craziest experience from beginning to end. I'll, I'll, I'll just basically give you the beginning and the end and, and fill in the blanks. Our first day of casting in New York City, our office was downtown um, uh, on Canal and Varick. Our first day in the office was... The day before it was 9, 10, 2001. Oh, wow. So it was the day before 9-11. Um, so the next morning, like the world shattered and uh, our office, we couldn't access it. I mean, it was just insane. So it was apocalyptic at that point. And then at the very end, uh, when the movie was being released, the day it was being released, um, it just feels very Harvey P. Carr. The day it was being released on it, it they did um what they did at the in those days is uh, a limited, like they put it on like 10 screens and then they build it. So it was on maybe like 15 screens or whatever. We're doing press during the day, sort of like this, except in person. And suddenly all the lights go out oh. and oh. it was the blackout. 
um, up and down the eastern seaboard, oh my which God. every single city that our movie was playing <laughs> in had no power. Oh. So, um, so we couldn't open that day. We had to wait till the next day. Um, and uh, but then the next day, we we were with Paul Giamatti. We like walked to our local theater, uh, which our house theater, which is sadly closed now, to see. And there was like a line around the block when the theater for the first screening That's when great. there was actually power. So it was a crazy, crazy experience. It was also, you know, I mean, it, a lot of people don't know that it was an HBO film and uh, they basically, you know, they're like, here's $1.5 million, do whatever you want. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen. Right. And they really had you know, no idea. From my perspective, that was so much money because we were documentary filmmakers. Now I know it wasn't really that much money, but um that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. But you know, it happened to us once, and it was kind of it was just wonderful, you know, like to have and to have the support to just be as wild and creative as as you want to be, you know, from and then once, from a corporate once entity, HBO you know what I mean? film they totally got all their money behind it you know and helped us so it was like being fully independent but then having the support of a big company behind yeah once they saw the film they threw parties that were much bigger budget than the movie and we were just kind of looking around (laughs) like why didn't we have the money to make the movie Uh, why do we have to buy our own coffee (laughs) you start seeing all the little things in on like the line (laughs) items that you're like oh that could have paid for exactly ted hope who's the producer was like not enjoying the party he was really aggravated by that Yeah, so Ted, and that's you mentioned Ted Hope. Ted Hope, you know, for those listening, is you know a legendary at this point, uh, you know, producer and you know supporter, shepherd of independent cinema, obviously. Um, so that's that's uh, yeah, it's so funny you bring up the early two thousands. It really was in a lot of ways that kind of last moment of like that specific like you're talking about like we had steve zahn on this podcast talking um about some of his work and we talked about happy texas right which was like five years before that which was like the biggest sale in the history of sundance right. and, you I know, remember that, that. and it's like you know you guys were catching some of that heat i suppose not not to that degree because that was like a whole different thing and like, like you said hbo was kind of bringing it into sundance so it's a little different of a situation but like but to be there and this still happens at Sundance obviously but not in the same way where then you're getting like you're saying the HBO they give you that money they let you do the you know paint the canvas as it were and then they're like oh we have something great here and they did of course and the rest is history so quickly before we jump into the the b-sides of it all things heard and seen a horror movie right it's it's I, I step in a new direction, I suppose, for you guys. But at the same time, what I one of the things I really liked about it is there there is that you know you guys like 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 you said, Robert. You guys are documentary filmmakers before every, before everything else. There is that like research mixed media thing in the movie that I think adds something to it. Where like Amanda's characters doing her own research their elements one thing i love that you guys did is and to obviously tell me if i'm totally crazy here there was a lot of super wide not fisheye but like 
super wide lenses that that really expand the space in the house in a very unsettling way and you were editing it where it was like pretty close like a pretty close shot and then focally it's like then you're like seeing the whole room and it feels very strange and like so those little touches uh were very effective and yeah if you can just talk a little bit about you, you know this this kind of new genre in your in your career and kind of what was that like well you know it's funny because we had this strange career of writing screenplays for the studios and then making our own documentaries, you know? So we were kind of employed as screenwriters and yet we were making our own films. Um, and, you know, we had written, we had written some horror, you know, we had worked in that, in that space before we actually did a, uh, we were hired to write a complete reinterpretation of the bride of Frankenstein. Um, and they wanted to, you know, the, the pitch to us was like, we want you guys to write, you know, a Roman Polanski kind of take on the Bride of Frankenstein. And we came up with this idea that her, it was her consciousness that was pieced together from dead people. It wasn't, it wasn't actually her body. And, you know, it was a kind of surreal, trippy, you know, psychological thriller kind of thing. And um, anyway, that's how we met Scarlett Johansson is that, you know, she was, you know, we wrote the screenplay. We were almost in production on that and it kind of fell apart. But um but anyway, so it's, it's a genre we've always loved. Um, we've always loved the kind of, I mean, I love all horror movies, but my favorites are the kind of, um, you know, the ones that linger with you after you turn the TV off. So they don't really necessarily go for the jump scares, but they're more of um, emotionally, you know, you get very emotionally invested in the people. And um, I think they can be the most beautiful cinematic movies you know i mean we talked a lot about don't look now was a movie that we've we the just nicholas rogue movie mm -hmm. the changeling rosemary's oh, changeling, baby yeah. another movie that i love that i don't think gets enough attention is ganja and hess which is you know i mean i remember staying up one night and watching that and i was sick i was kind of in a fever dream and i just went down a rabbit hole you know learning everything about that director because i thought it was just so original and beautiful. And um, anyway, you know, it's something that we've always wanted to do. And then we have a house up in the Hudson Valley, you know, which is, you know, the landscape there and the light and it's, you know, very dramatic setting. And we've always wanted to make something up there. You know, it's got the, you know, the history of, of you know, the Headless Horseman tales and um, it's got the clinging fog and, you know, it's it's just a very, and it also has this backdrop of the Hudson River School of Art. And then I found this book, you know, that brought together all of those things. And at the time it was, I found it in the local paper and I said, I, I got it because it intrigued me. And then I loved it and I had Sherry read it and she loved it. And it started getting national attention. You know, it was getting very good reviews and the New York times was, you know, saying it's a great, a great read. And um, so I just contacted the, the writer and uh, we really hit it off. And um, we pitched it uh, to Netflix and they came on board with it. So that's how it, it really came to be. And it was something that, you know, really gave us an opportunity. You know, it had this whole kind of landscape painting aspect to the horror, which I loved. And the movie we watched, I think, the most was probably Barry Lyndon. Oh, you know, yeah. even though it's not a horror movie, but, you know, it was like an opportunity to really, you know, look at, 
look at landscape painting and bringing that to cinema and that movie does it better than anyone. And then we ended up hiring, you know, this DP whose first movie was Barry Lyndon just by chance, you know, we mm-hmm. met him and mm-hmm. he came up under Kubrick. He worked, he, he shot eyes wide shut. He like was oh, Kubrick's right. kind of right hand, Larry, Larry Smith, great guy. So it was, it was, it was meant to be that we that we wound up shooting with him because we were so inspired by the landscape. I mean, the art and the landscape, um, and, and, and the marriage, you know, the idea of a dissolution of a marriage, some real emotion, not just the spirituality and the, and the scares are a layer of the story, but we really liked that it was rooted in something real. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about the movie that's the most disturbing, right? Is like, it's so you, you watch that couple and um and 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 uh, uh james dorton plays the husband uh i should just say um and um they're like you're like seeing bits of things that you can you're like that's the thing you're you're so right when you talk about like don't look now obviously and and even barry linden which is not a not a thriller but yeah it's like the human elements are the things that are standing out and everything else obviously adds to it but that's the main thing and i just need to say me and connor are basically we're from the hudson valley so i i loved watching it because i'm from right outside of poughkeepsie as a matter of fact so i was like we were shooting around there yeah yeah my first my first job when i was in high school i wrote movie reviews for the Poughkeepsie Journal for their teen section back in the day. Very cool. Oh, very uh, cool. Oh, we should yeah. based ourselves in Kingston, you know. Yeah. And yeah. then we shot a lot in Dutchess County, and on go. the other side of the river too, we shot um, yeah. some of this. And and, and we that, really yeah. wanted it to be truthful to the you know. It's like as a director, because I come from docs, and we come. I I'm never interested in directing something where they're like, oh, it could be said anywhere. Like that, I'm not interested in because anywhere is not specific enough to me. I like the the specificity of a place and to really have that, you know, the way Cleveland, if you talk about American Splendor, Cleveland was every aspect of, of, of Harvey and his world. And it gave so much to the to the movie. So in this case, we needed to shoot it. We really shot it in and around the exact places that the book was based in. And it really informed, you know, every frame of the movie. Yeah. And it's just you're so right about that area, obviously. Um, There's such it's so beautiful, of course. But there is that very like old timey puritanical like thing that like haunts everything (laughs) around it and when you grow up there you know i grew up in not like some big house or anything but like you know everything's wood in the creeks and the whatever and like you know my wife didn't grow up that way we laugh where it's like she's like what's that sound i'm like i don't know it's just i grew i grew up with every sound you just get so used to it you're like whatever she's from she's from pittsburgh so it's a different type of right it's just a different like she's like you know growing up kind of in the hudson valley where like everything's i didn't Everything's I didn't think haunted. I everything's haunted. <laughs> the whole, yeah. the whole, you know, the, the, whole writer, the writer of the book 
one of the things that inspired her to write it is she was renting a house in the town that we live in. She said she'd go to the store. People would be like, oh, where are you living? And she'd tell them, oh, I'm renting this house on so-and-so road. And they'd be like, oh, that house is haunted. You know, <laughs> you know, she's, she'd be like getting her coffee and she's like, what? Like it has, like it has ants or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, yeah, like, oh, exactly. yeah ghosts. <laughs> like, it was like, yeah, no, no fear of it. Just like, yeah, yeah, you got the haunted house. And she's really funny because she's like... You know, she's an urbanite, too. I mean, she went to film school. I think she went to NYU. She went to NYU, yeah. And um, she's a really interesting person. And and she's like, I'm the biggest skeptic in the world. But the weirdest shit started happening to me when I lived in that house. And I can't even explain. Yeah. My kids started seeing these things. She showed us some pictures of these shoes. terrifying. Like old-fashioned her shoes. Kids were talking to, she said her kids were talking to some children. And then she found these little children's shoes from like she was out of there i guess it was from like the turn of the century like under something i mean it's just and it's funny because when we started making this movie then all the local people were like oh yeah that house is haunted that house is so yeah it's it really is very haunted up there i mean beautiful striking like dramatic but yeah. also yeah. haunted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very it's a, it's a very Bronte situation. Yeah, you know, very yeah. kind of a little Jane Eyre, little little Wuthering. Um, there's a lot so, of English people up there. Have you there noticed is. that? There's a there lot is. of like yeah. uh, expatriates who gravitate towards the Hudson Valley from the UK. I notice, and I think it's feels very at home to them. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Um, so tell me tell me this because because as you keep mentioning, you guys have made some documentaries and some even your your fictional films. You know, like Cinema Verite, for example, is obviously well. It's funny. One thing I wanted to bring up to you guys is rewatching American Splendor. All I could think about was, oh man, these guys must love real life by Albert Brooks. And then I was like, oh, of course you made Cinema Verite, which is like <laughs> yes. a loop we actually, around, right? We screened, we, I, I, before we started shooting, we screened that movie at the kind of like get together for the cast and everything, um, just for fun, just kind yeah. of like a warm up. <laughs> or we started yeah. filming cinema verite and so for those who for those who are listening who don't know fully so so um sharon robert made cinema verite which was an hbo film which is about the pbs documentary series about the loud family from the early 70s which was many people say the beginning of reality television it was a huge moment in the in the country, in the world, everybody watched it. It was a uh, controversial and, and kind of seeing a family in all these different ways. Um, and then Albert Brooks, young Albert Brooks made real life, which I believe was his first movie, I think. And it's a com comedic interpretation, very much based on the louds and, and, and that documentary series. And then obviously you guys making cinema verite, you know, what 30 years later. So, so, um, but before we get to Cinema Verite, I wanted to ask just briefly about Off the Menu, The Last Days of Chasens, because that is an interesting moment in L.A. history, right? You guys kind of captured the end of Chasens, which was this Hollywood, you know, staple uh, restaurant hang. Uh, was that Did that kind of put you guys on the map in some sort of way? Or how, how did I know Siskel and Ebert loved it? I remember that. But but what did how, how did that uh, come it about? Did. It, it wasn't very strategic, but every every executive older executive in Hollywood wanted to see it because it was their stomping ground. Bob and I went on tour. It was the, I mean, not really literally on tour, but, you know, we still lived in New York. We went out to L.A., 
and like every octogenarian Hollywood, ex- <laughs> like like Lou Wasserman, like those yeah, people yeah, yeah. wanted to do private screenings of the movie and invited us to come as like the you know special guest star. So we were like still in film school when we made that movie, and yet oddly enough, we were like being escorted around old Beverly Hills. Like the only people we knew in Hollywood were like 80 years old. Um, and it was a very interesting uh, experience. But you know, the way we found that story was insane. So we were still at Columbia in graduate school of film and we got our first agent, which is really hard as screenwriters, which is like, was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was find an agent. and. The agent wanted us to go out with the script and he was like, you have to come to LA. You know, we lived in New York. You have to, you have to go do meetings. And we had no money. We were still film students. So Bob found a bed and breakfast in West Hollywood. And he's like, I think this place is okay. It looks very, very weird and eccentric, but let's stay there. And we, we drive up and we get greeted at the door by this man in a tuxedo and he has this very affected accent. He's like, hello, my dear. Like, that's how he talked, like, um, old Hollywood movie. Nobody yeah. really speaks like that ever. And um, he's like, I'm running off to work. Have some chili from Chasen's. It's in the fridge. It was his bed and breakfast. And it turned out that guy was like the mate, that like one of the head mate um, uh, captains at, at Chasen's. His name was Raymond Bilboul. And he was fascinating. He was like no one Bob and I had ever met in our entire he, he lives. He reminded us of like, you know, the character actor in in like the Lost in Space. <laughs> well, he was a lot like yes, he was a lot like him, but but like the character actor in like, um, you know, a, a Fred Astaire movie who would like Edward Everett Horton. Yeah, you know, mm. I don't know, if you know who that is, but some of those great character actors from those old movies that would just kind of come on screen for a second and steal the show with, you know, with, and he was just hilarious. I mean, he was just so funny and witty that we were like, let's make a movie about we, it. We would come back from pitching and it was going really badly. Like nobody was buying our script and we'd come back and Raymond would sit around and talk about like, oh, yesterday, you know, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Uh, Spelling came in. It, it was always like the wife of Aaron Spelling, not Aaron Spelling himself. You know, Mrs. Spelling came in, and then this one got it mad at that one. And we were just so fascinated. We're like, okay, forget this script we're pitching. We're making a document. And <laughs> and they had just announced they were closing. So we're like, we're making a documentary about it. Oh man, that's so great. Yeah, that's such a I mean, look, that's a beautiful doc. That's a great that's a great do- documentarian discovery you know what i mean to just like run into a fascinating character and be like let's do it that's so yeah, funny I mean, you know they had never allowed cameras in that place it was very you know you know ronnie reagan is eating right now and you know frank sinatra and it was very like the sinatra family came in and we had to hide in the back because they were like <laughs> you can't be here so we like hid in a closet but everyone loved raymond and raymond pitched us to the staff and let them know that the movie was really about them and um that's how we got access you know and they somehow agreed to let us in so that's, that's so, so great. cool yeah yeah and that's yeah, it's a great document. Um, obviously, that's that's the late nineties American Splendor, like we said, comes in 03. Um So yeah, I mean, look, the uh, the the 
the nanny diaries the extra man and cinema verite right are are the movies you make after american splendor there's wanderlust obviously as well which is a documentary with a lot of clips from older movies and, and whatnot um, have you guys have you guys been able to get a hold of that one i have not i, I tried to try yeah i tried to track it down but unfortunately it's not just old clips it's there's like a narrative in it with paul rudd and tom, and tom McCarthy. mccarthy the director who is also an actor yeah yeah and, and uh we made this, it was, I mean, I loved making that movie. We had such a great time, but there was some. There was some issues with licensing the clips. Right. So. You know what's funny? I was going to ask you guys, I didn't want to like poke at a, at a wound or whatever, but I, when I was doing a little bit of research, there was a New York Times article. That's right. Where the guy, it was like, we got it. We're, we're going to figure out the rights. Don't worry. Like, it's a very confident, like. And then you know, that guy never figured it out. <laughs> and then they cut the thing up. And then there was panic and they just pulled it. And uh, I don't think I anyone's know. ever seen it, you know. And it, must be. it was great for us because we got to interview all of these, like, legendary people that we have, like, that all these. Like, we had lunch with Hal Needham and. Yeah, Hal Needham and Vin, Vin Vendors, and and and, oh, and it man. was like it was like for us, it was like Monty Hellman. Yeah, uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. We got to meet. It was like for us, it was a chance for us to meet all these like cinematic heroes of ours. But unfortunately, nobody else <laughs> got to see it. Yeah, I mean that stuff is so. I mean, me and Connor for our. Uh, other job if you will we're producers and post producers you know in new york and 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 primarily but everything you just said is like giving my post supervisor brain like a heart attack like i'm just like i didn't license this job but it is a moving target thing not to go too far down the rabbit hole but it is a moving target weird thing where like i remember at sundance when room to when room 237 came out um I remember being in line and like other producers were like, well, it's a cool movie, but it'll never get released. Cause it's just all like the Kubrick movies. Like they're, he doesn't have any of the rights. And then they did figure that out and it did come out. Like, mm-hmm. so it's weird how it is a very specific, like it really depends on who owns the clips. It depends on kind of the conversation you have and like how you can negotiate. And like, you know, me and Connor on a way lower level have had those conversations about, you know, you know, commercial projects and whatever, but, but like, yeah, that's, it's just fascinating that it's just that's just a movie that I suppose that's just slightly lost. But at least you got to have those great conversations. Oh, it was great. It was, you know, time of our lives. To be like, honest it was so with you, fun. yeah. When you're when I mean I'm kind of like you know for a movie for me is like a crossword puzzle, and when I, when and I'm obsessed while I'm making it, and when I'm done with it, I move on in a way, you know, and I don't really want to look at the done crossword puzzle that much. So for me, it wasn't you know it wasn't that. I mean, I, w- I would like to see it again. You know, I, I mm-hmm. it's been so long since I've seen it, but it wasn't that devastating, but it wasn't, it was a pretty expensive movie, you know, like it wasn't, you know, they spent, they spent money on it. And um, so, you know, I kind of felt for them, you know, for yeah, the, sure. Of course for them, because you know, <laughs> it was a lot of, it was a lot of work and uh, there was some good work that went into it. Um, and so, I just I want to mention the extra man um, because that is a a really good movie featuring a couple of incredible performances. One of them being Kevin Klein, who like for my money is I don't know the greatest living actor. You know he's just so great. So that's a movie that 
it really is a b-side and it really should not be and it's always i, I always kind of that's always where i'm like we really want to champion those ones because it's like that's a movie that i caught late as you know myself and was so pleasantly surprised by that movie so i guess let's just spend a couple minutes on the extra man and just kind of what that experience was like obviously you got kevin klein you got paul dano you got katie holmes um John C. Riley. John C. Yep. Riley, of course. Um, Barely recognizable, but he's in there under he's all in that there. hair. Yeah. <laughs> it, was the first... <laughs> it kind of introduced Jonathan Ames to the viewing did. world, yeah. you know, and his voice. I mean, he's so such a great writer, and his voice is so unique. And I, we were sent that book by, by mistake. mistake. <laughs> um, and there was like a panic, like, don't read it. And I'm like, why? They're like, no, that's not the that's not adaptable. That's not the one. And I'm like, well, I'm going to read it now. <laughs> and we read it and we loved it. And, and we're like, we're too late. We're doing it. And, um, you know, I love that movie and it, it really, I, I mean, I think the time that it came out, I mean, to me, it was, it was Jonathan's voice. It was, you know, his odd sense of humor and, um, it also was kind of a, a an odd look at gender, you know, in a lot of ways. It was like a parody of gender and in I think in a way that people were not ready for at all, because you've got this mean character who's who wants to be a young gentleman, yet he has this kind of he's going through this kind of panic of whether or not he's a crossdresser or a uh or actually wants to transition. And you've got Kevin Klein's character who's just got really backward ideas about gender and and then you've got john c Riley, who's this like you know testosterone testosterone right. with a high laden, voice. yeah <laughs> guy with this high voice and it just for us it was it was hilarious and there was something also you know jonathan's writing is quite beautiful too and, and it was very personal for john i mean it was based on, uh for jonathan it was it was based on a period in his life when he lived with someone like Henry Harrison. He was roommates with a guy named Henry Harrison. So there was a lot of, you know, real experience in there. Um, but I hope, um, yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope it gets, you know, I, I know it's kind of getting rediscovered as things do, you know, on, on Twitter, I'll see it mentioned as like, you know, check this movie out, you know, whatnot, you know, as, as Kevin, you know, Kevin Klein, legend status, you, you go back, you want to you know, watch the stuff. It's one of his greatest seen. performances. I think. He's so great in it. And, and, and then to your point, uh, to both of your points, those elements now that we we know Jonathan Ames and we have Bored to Death and we have other work, I feel That's like right. they're more accessible now, maybe. And even now the conversation is so much more nuanced in that space and so progressive. True. So I do hope all those listening in the world, like I, I, I do think there's a lot to mine from the extra man because it is, it, it was a bit ahead of your time. You, you guys are right about that. It kind of felt maybe a, a few years too early in a weird way. We but. got some critic. People were really confused by the gender issue when we were making it, and they were like, they were angry that Paul Dino wasn't gay. Yeah, they're like, why isn't hmm. he gay? And we're like, well, you know, because we spoke to a lot of transgender people when we were making it, and it's like, well he's it's not about his sexuality it's about his gender identity and at that point in time which wasn't that long ago people were like i don't understand that right. like they like 
Like literally people couldn't understand that. And we're so much farther along now in the conversation. I feel like, I just feel like it didn't quite, um, people weren't there yet. So maybe now they can watch it and see and understand the difference. And, and there's a fascinating kind of, I think, connect, you know, you met, you mentioned before about, you know, the rewatch of something like American Splendor and the reason it's effective is because of like the disappointment of life <laughs> to a degree. And I couldn't help but think about that uh, when looking at Kevin Klein's performance in this movie, because it just it, it I feel like it pervades and even, you know, parts of. Uh, not really, I mean, sort of the whole through line of Cinema Verte, right, is you're just watching these people who maybe had a certain idea of their life and then everything else set in, right? And and I think, um, I think what's so fascinating about Klein and Dano in this movie is you're like, you're watching Kevin Klein, everything's already set in, but maybe he 100% thought it was going to go like a totally different way, right? And then you have Dano, who's like in the throes of that and right. and is like watching what could happen to him to a degree and, yeah. and, and navigating that. And I think it's it's a fascinating uh, I think it's a super fascinating dichotomy. It's also very, you know, New York is unique in that people move here to be close to high culture, mm-hmm. you know. People move to Los Angeles to be close to show business, you know. Yeah. But people come to New York to, you know, and there's there's just a whole population of people who are older who get invited who somehow get invited to these cultural events and you see them stuffing the hors d'oeuvres in their pockets, <laughs> you know. And I've 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 known so many people like that in our tr- our New York travels that I just think the Jonathan privileged poor, you know. Right. They're like they're like they don't have any money. They barely, you know, they live in rent stabilized apartments, which is what I imagine Henry Harrison. I had an uncle when I moved to uh, to the Upper West Side. My mother was like, you know, I have this crazy like poet uncle who fell out with the family who I think lives right near you. When I found him, he was like the neighborhood weirdo. Like he walked around talking to himself and he lived it. He paid like $200 a month rent oh and he God. lived in this like three bedroom, you know, like this huge apartment. And, um, you know, it was like barely had a job ever in his life. But ratty, ratty. And, and elegant at the same time. Yeah. Always had like a, you know, tie. But like <laughs> his suit was like a hundred years old. And, and, and so I feel like there's a lot of that in New York city. And, and, you know, even when you go to like, we're in the Academy and even the Academy, but you go to events and you see these people and you're like, Oh, they, they, those people are barely getting by, but they're going to the fanciest event and they get a good meal, you know, out of it. And that's what Henry Harrison was all about. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very, and look, and you know, uh, a lot of your work as New Yorkers, obviously, a lot of your work has that very specific New York touch, which I think is so lovely when you talk about something like even 10,000 Saints, um, you know, obviously has that. And um, that's so nice to see, because I do think in New York, it's not lost to New York. Obviously, New York is is ever evolving and, and that, that element will always be there. But it's nice to have those kind of documents of maybe things that are even less common than they were even you know 10 years ago so and also so, ex- extremely specific as opposed to sort of a general superficial like you guys idea. Were, like you guys yeah. were saying earlier yeah, yeah like l- location being and that's look that's the other thing as documentarians and and i think you guys edit 
did you guys edit every movie uh, you, you make? <clears throat> I didn't edit this one. I, I didn't oh, wow. Okay. For some reason. You know, it's interesting because, um, I mean, this one meaning uh, things heard and seen. Right. I, part of the, I love editing, but part of the reason why I edited a lot of our films was that I get very nervous sitting in a room with an editor when I know how to edit and having to explain what I want. And it's, I know, I find I know that, exactly how you feel, <laughs> you know, and it's like, for, I, I'm not the most, chair and yeah. I just, sometimes I can't find the words, you know, mm -hmm. and I, you know, cause it's like music. And um, so now it's a lot easier because I can sit with a cut at home, you know, and I can write notes and I can be really specific and I don't have to waste time saying stupid things that are not really um, being inarticulate about what I want and stuff like that. So um, I, I, it's not that I, I have to edit the films and it's become a lot easier for me um, to work. I mean, we worked so virtually on this last movie, you know, right. and, um, we did a few television stuff like we right now we're actually shooting another episode of succession like we're in the we're going we're in the process we're just off today i was gonna i was gonna compliment you guys on uh, on directing probably the funniest episode of succession of all the episodes that <laughs> we got very lucky to get so much humor in one episode that was That's, so much fun you know what's funny is episode. that jesse was a fan of the extra man um Jesse's whose show it is he was at the premiere at, at Sundance and that really warmed my heart because every time I meet with someone they what they talk about American Splendor and um, yeah Jesse went on about the extra man <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because you know Succession when it was when it first came out like people were not the press was not excited about that show I don't know if you guys remember no yeah, I do, yeah. they were kind of like it doesn't know what it wants to be the tone is really weird and it but then people call you know with television people have a chance to catch up to the tone you know if you're doing something a little unorthodox with a movie it's it's harder to get people you know they have to wait maybe rediscover it if they ever give it a second chance you know if you've got a, a heart and I think the extra man was victim of that a bit and and just the editorially, I was saying that doing TV, there you you don't edit. You have to work for you know with an editor, look at a cut. And when we started doing that, um, I think Bob was like, "Oh, this is kind of cool. I like this." So it introduced us to working with other people. It's interesting uh, you mentioned that because I you know sometimes you see filmmakers who you know they'll direct and they'll also edit and I feel like sometimes you look at those films and you go oh you really this really should have been two separate people right like having that extra set of eyes do you do the two of you find it easy because you're already a pair that you know you know Robert if you're editing something Sherry you can be that objective set of eyes to say hey that doesn't work or. It's, yeah, it gets pretty. Like it gets pretty we awful. We fight so much <laughs> in the editing room. Like we don't fight as much during, but in the editing room, I would say when Bob edits, every every time I fire him for a day, I'm like, because I'm the director, I'm like, you're fired. I can't. Like, it, so yes, there. It's it's like totally. He's the editor and I'm the director now. So it, it and, changes our dynamic. But I still think it's helpful to have another set of eyes. Yes, you know, totally. Definitely. I, I think there are some movies that, you know, I wish I didn't edit, that I had edited, that <clears throat> could have benefited from, I think, you know, another set of eyes on it. it I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that only because it just... Um, 
particularly about having those arguments, because to me, that's almost uh, like a very necessary part of the editing process, right? Is getting that sort of second set of people to, to just look at something and be like, yeah, oh, that doesn't look quite right. And then, you know, as an editor, if you're in the chair, you then have to kind of defend your position. And sometimes you win those fights. And what would happen is he would work on something. I'd come into for like an hour and a half. I'd come into the editing room. He'd be like, what do you think of this? And I'd be like, nah, I don't like it at all. And that's it. He'd be like, what do you mean you don't like it? Like I dismiss it, not even give it caring that yeah, he yeah, worked exactly. an hour and a half uh, on it. It's, oh, and that, then the fight goes on it's from a there. Very, uh, it's, so yeah, close. it's a very, very specific, relatable thing. So let me actually, while we have one or two more questions, let me go back to the nanny diaries if I can, because you were mentioning Scarlett Johansson earlier. Um, what was that experience like? Because it must have been a di- you were you were kind of going from indie right million dollar situation to like it's pretty small. pretty big movie. You know what I mean? Like, what was that transition like? You, you know, what was it was a big movie, but for us, but it was half the budget of Devil Wears Prada, but it wanted the same production value. Mm. So, and it was Harvey Weinstein, you know, so we oh, were going yeah. from this very nurturing home <laughs> of HBO to like do whatever you want to this firestorm mayhem of that Death guy. Death. And <laughs> it really messed with our heads. I mean, it was quite a transition to, you know, and and look, it was it was, you know, Scarlet was it was so lovely and wonderful and um you know, I, I remember saying to her, like, what kind of movie do you want to make? Because she was really the one that was championing. We we had been hired uh, to just write. as writers. And we were like the third set of writers oh, on the project. I see. And um, we, you know, I guess we cracked it. And I, I never expected it to come back to us. And um, but we had this thing with, you know, we had met with Scarlett about other things. And um, she said she really wanted to make a movie that girls would she said i really want to make a movie that you watch when you're sick and i thought you know that's a that's a really interesting way to approach a movie and i kind of got what she wanted you know got what she meant by that and so that that kind of you know the actors were great we had a great we have a lot of great memories but it was just insane i mean it was just insane just getting it over the finish line was just it was like torturous i imagine right just in terms of just that process yeah 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 it was tough and um you know in post the cut the edit the shooting wasn't bad but the the classic weinstein company post yeah. situation yeah, the, the scissor hands thing yeah. yeah all you've heard is true true <laughs> it's amazing though, the presence that movie is still around it's always on top. well i was you know we I, I, I literally a month ago um my wife just turned it on and we just, it was a classic. I mean, funny you said that Scarlett said that about the movie we watched when you're sick, we weren't sick, but it was very much that TNT Sunday thing where it was like, I think she, I don't know if it was on Netflix or whatever it was. She like pressed play. I came into the room and it was like, Oh, what are you watching? Oh, the nanny diaries. Okay. And then the, the thought was to watch 10 minutes. And then we just, we just watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> like an hour and an hour and a half. Don't tell and, 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 no, but, but, but a funny thing, I brought up the kind of the mixed media thing, you know, 
that you guys kind of employ in some of your movies, some of your aesthetics, you know, Nanny Diaries does have a creative version of that. And, you know, my wife, who's not as much of a movie person as me, she was taken by it. And I remember like talking to her about, oh yeah, these guys, like if you watch American Splendor, they're doing kind of a thing where it's like, there's a meta thing happening. And obviously it's different, you know, it's almost like anthropological or what, what not in the Nanny Diaries. But, but those, those things are very creative and stand out and as the years go on i'm sure you guys i'm not telling you anything you don't know but but they're they're effective right they're effective frameworks that i think add something when employed for the right project and i think our diorama yeah the diorama is recreating the uh the museum of natural history that was was, yeah that was really fun uh to do that you know my whole film education was you know, I had this book by this critic, Danny Peary, Cult Films. Do you guys know that book? I and know it. I've never read it. Yeah, I know one it. Of them, yeah. And the other one is called Guide for the Film Fanatic. And I came of age when, you know, I had a video local video store that said, if it's available on, on tape, we'll get it for you. And so it was all about, for me, it was all about, like, I, I love what you guys do, because it, for me, it was all about, like, going into past films and watching everything that that was interesting to me. And so I don't really care that much about like the present when a film is released for me, it's more important about how it's going to live and what, you know, it might not be, it might not meet its moment. Right. Or it might not be the right movie at the time, but how is it going to play? Like if someone decides to dig it up years later, you know, we always talk about that and, and that's, what's really important to us. Um, And that's why, you know, we, we put all that, you know, we, we never, we've never phoned it in. I mean, we've always tried to find a creative you way know, to tell everything. I was, it just reminded me that like weird cult movies that really impacted a movie that was our sort of guidepost for the extra man was a movie I adore that never got the right due, which is called with Nal and I, I don't oh, know. Of if course. Yeah. Yeah, we watch that movie constantly to inspire us for... Well, that character was just so perfect. Uh, Richard E. Grant character, yeah, yeah, um, was like very Kevin Klein. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes... And that movie, I think, will live for... I mean, when it first came out, I mean, it had some recognition, but I feel like people will study that and... Also, The Big Lebowski, I remember when that came out. I think it followed... Fargo. I think it, well, that know. was that was the problem, right? Do you remember that? Like, I, I vivid. I was ten or whatever, but I remember like everybody being like, "This sucks." Like, yeah, like, <laughs> Jerry and I paid to see it three times. We saw it in the movie. I've never done that before, but we were so taken by that movie, and, and everybody by- was like, "What is wrong with you?" Like, this is a this is a masterpiece and everybody thought we were nuts. So yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, Matt Damon has this quote that I love, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure other people have said it, but he had a quote where he was like, you know, the Oscars, they should award movies 10 years later where it's like, yeah, I mean, that of course cannot happen. But of course, like, yeah, as we record this, like the day before the Oscars, we don't really know if Nomad Land is going to be the thing you know, hopefully it is. I, I like No Man Land. I, you know, Chloe Zhao is a very talented film. But you know what I mean? Like, we don't know yet. Like, The Father is one of the most brilliantly edited movies I've ever seen. So it's like, 
that's a little late to the game. Hopefully people will, you know, discover the father and maybe that'll be a movie where you're like, you know, we did, we did a B side um, about, Oscar movies because there are so many Oscar nominated movies that are B-sides like Ironweed was a movie we talked about with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson that nobody remembers they both got nominated for uh, the Hector Babenko movie and there's plenty that's interesting in that movie but like yeah to your guys' point the whole thesis of this podcast is literally that exact thing where it's like you go back and you go like oh man you know City Pollock you know did a remake of Sabrina with Harrison Ford that did okay and people have totally forgotten about and it's actually really good like you know like <laughs> yeah yeah you know where at the time you know even Harrison Ford was like that ah, we shouldn't have done that I don't well, know you see, but, that, but like, you see that in literature too I mean there's like I mean do you know the book Stoner Yes, um, yes, yeah. On Williams, I mean, that's one of my favorite books, and that it was so stylistically not of its time. People were like, "No, you know." Or Moby like, Dick. Or Moby Dick. Moby Dick, Moby right. Dick yeah. was a flop. I yeah. mean, his whole career was a flop. <laughs> yeah. I mean, except for his first book, and you know, what a life. I mean, he's like the patron saint of. of well, even. Even Great Gatsby, I always tell this story. You know, Fitzgerald. Speaking of extra man, uh, you know, um, Fitzgerald. Uh, was the star because of this side of paradise and then great gatsby was supposed to be like the big follow-up and it came out and people were like not really and then world war ii happened and because they had printed so many copies of great gatsby because they thought it was going to be a hit but it wasn't they put the great gatsby into all of the soldiers oh, really? packs. it was like it was like really? swag yes. <laughs> yeah so <laughs> They were like, well, we got all these Gatsby books. So given to the soldiers, <laughs> they're going overseas. And then that. they came and they, they read it because they were, chill, you know, in, in between, you know, doing their thing. And and they came back and they were like, hey, there's this book, Great Gatsby. And it like became a hit. But it's like, you know, it's a wonderful life that happened. It's a very common theme. And it's nice to kind of acknowledge it and celebrate it when you can, for sure. That's right. Well, That's good right. for you guys for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys have to keep making stuff, you know, the hits and b-sides you know yeah. mix it up obviously but <laughs> i uh, unfortunately to my own detriment i love these i love the side <laughs> movies and um you know for you know for me like I, I mean we won so many awards for american splendor but the thing that i get the most uh joy out of is that people still talk about it you know like mm-hmm. that to me is the true test if it's if it's something that you know because there were so many awarded movies at that era that are completely forgotten you know that that you know and you know my niece was when she was in school was telling me she had a course and there was a poster of american splendor on the wall of the film studies course you know and that that to me is like the greatest compliment that you know if a movie has a life after you know that's much more interesting than me about how awarded it was or in its year that it was released or whatever the box office was or you know yeah. No, I mean, yeah, well said. Well, well, well said. So, uh, so a- as we wrap up, you guys have succession you're working on, which is great. Um, what else is, is coming up? Anything, anything you can share? We don't really have any, you know, we don't really have anything lined up next. We have, you know, we're reading things. We're kind of in that space now where we're like, sometimes what you do is a reaction to the last thing you did, you know, and we're just kind of in that receptive moment right now where we're like, what do we do? Um, but we are, yeah, we're doing some, some, uh, directing stuff of that we haven't written, you know, like directing a, a few television things and, and starting to write and look for material and, 
find our next project. Do you guys, when you're writing, I mean, is that like, Sherry, you do a draft, you pass it off to, to Rob? Like, is that, he always is that... does the first draft. I love it. I love it. That's and great. And then I good. make it good. <laughs> that's funny. That's kind of, you know, me, me and Connor have written things together, and that's actually basically how it always goes. I write something, I'll be like, hey, man, Connor, you want to make that dialogue a little bit better? Do, 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 do that thing that you do, you, and, and, he, and he does it. Um, I, like to cook. I like to cook and make a mess and let – you know, and then Sherry comes and cleans it up and organizes it. But I hate better. starting with the blanks. Yeah, so me it too. Works. I one hundred percent agree. If you, yeah. I can tell you an idea, but if you ask me to put it on paper from scratch, I'm like, no. Can I just like, can I dictate it to you, and then you figure it out, and then we'll go from there. Um, well, that means you guys are a good team. Yeah, I mean, we're, hey, we, 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 we try, you know, we try, but, uh, well, guys, congrats on the new movie. Congrats on all the, all the other movies. Obviously it's been great to kind of, uh, talk with you guys about your whole career. Um, and yeah, I mean, please, everybody listening, seek out, seek out all the work and, uh, especially, uh, especially the new movie, which is on Netflix and is good is scary. I'm not, a, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm a very scary. I don't, I don't love scary movies. Like I'm a scaredy cat and this one got under my skin in a very good way so for oh, good, good. well, <laughs> well, I, I, well think this is, I, th I think it's okay for people who are who are not like horror horror i'm, I'm yeah. a living example of it I, i'm a very eyes in front of my face guy and i was uh i was i, w I was i was engaged and my yeah me and my wife were like Ugh. so it was good. good um all right guys thank you so much we really so great to it. be you both this really yeah fun. This it was, was really pleasure. fun keep doing have what you're doing it's awesome <laughs> thank, thank you thank you, thank you. Have, <laughs> have a good rest of your day you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Well, there you have it. A couple nice people. What a, a delight. nice people. I want to like. Um, I want to have dinner with them and a glass of wine. I know. Two, maybe two. <laughs> Hell, yeah, two right, glasses. Right. Well, bring another bottle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... We talk a lot about their movies, so I don't need... I don't know that we need to go crazy and like you know, additional commentary, uh, except to say they, as they say themselves in the interview, right. And then, you know, we, we talk about it in some detail, like the output is there. And I think we talk, we, I mean, look, we talk about this a lot. Like to me, they represent directors that I love, which is like, and I feel like this is, we talked about this at, in ad nauseum, but like the auteur thing, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like based on who we cover, a lot of times we're fighting against the theory to some degree, which is perhaps unfair because of course there are a million auteurs that I love. But the, the thing that I love about these guys and what represents kind of what we talk about a lot of times, like, like with the Joel Schumacher, for example, mm -hmm. another person we've covered is they're able to do a bunch of things. Like they made a horror movie and I, you know, in the interview, I'm like, Oh wow, that's a departure. And they're like, well, yeah, it is. But also we've been writing horror movies and like, they just didn't get made. We were developing Bride of Frankenstein with Scarlett Johansson, which like, I don't which even sounded remember. like kind of a, also a cool rendering of that story, the way they described it, frankly, I was like, yeah, it seems dope. Yeah. And I guess I remember, remember reading about that like that would have been the mid 2000s where like i was reading slash film all the time yeah and, you know yeah. that type of stuff like so i'm assuming i knew about that i just don't even you know and then that all basically the way they frame it is to suge suggest that the ultimate failure of that movie happening resulted in the nanny diaries right whether or not 
that's directly A to B. The the Johansson relationship starts, it would seem, from Bride of Frankenstein. And then I, point is like to watch a Sherry Springer Bergman and Robert Pulcini movie like The Extra Man, you would never be like, oh, they'll make a really kind of nifty thriller in 10 no, years. Yeah, 100%. And even, I mean, again, it's like the – and just because someone's not an auteur or doesn't subscribe to auteur theory, it doesn't mean they don't like carry things through, you know, like just by – just by virtue of the things that they're interested in or the things that, that, you know, make, uh, the bedrock of this kind of stories that they want to tell, which is what I thought was interesting while watching some of these movies. Um, because other than the nanny diaries, the only other one I had seen was, uh, American splendor. So watching, um, cinema verite and, uh, the extra man, like that, interesting thing and i'd i mean i know we covered the nanny diaries uh a while back uh when we did our avengers episode or one of our avengers episodes um but i so i don't quite know maybe how this relates to that but at least from splendor to verite to uh extra man there is that very interesting thing that we talked about which is like this sort of weight of life and experience and time right and and uh and like the both like the sadness inherent in that and the disappointment inherent that but also by proxy the inherent comedy in that right of just like an, a kind of an exasperation and um and i think it's really interesting how those types of it feels not even just like a thing they're pulling through even consciously right from film to film it just feels like a thing that's so effortlessly relatable as a viewer especially as you get older that i feel like i start seeing it everywhere you know and uh, particularly with like diane lane in in cinema verite um who we didn't really talk about but she gives such a killer performance um in that movie everybody basically does um gandolfini r.i.p is 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 great in it um, he's so also, he's so good. I do want to pit stop real quick at it. Cause he's so fucking good in that movie at this kind of like lovable duplicity where like they have those whole, they have a couple moments where like, you know, they talk about being a bullshitter and blah, 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 blah. And he sells himself as not being a bullshitter, but he also has to you know, he's also a salesman, right? Because he has to sell this documentary. So he's a hundred percent a bullshitter and like the ways in which he finds, you know, little ins and outs to be able to convince her that he's genuine. Yeah. The soft betrayal in that movie, which is so well rendered. That's the best word for it. By Berman and Pulcini is, is Diane, Diane Lane's character. um, Pat Pat Loud. Yeah. She sees a manipulative, you know, assholey, you know, uh, Nixonite in her husband who is not being, you know, truthful in many different ways yeah. to her. And then in Gandolfini, you know, who's this documentarian who, you know, champion of the truth, right? Working for yeah. PBS, blah, 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 right? 
she sees potentially an outlet, right? An ally, you know, a confidant, you know, it may be something more, right? That's hinted right, at, of right, course. That they, like, and of course, gently allude to that she will only find, like we said, more duplicity in the nature of the job of being a director and a producer in the sense of kind of needing to, you know, gesticulate drama and figure it out yeah. and like, and, um, that element of it is where when you talk about that being the advent of reality TV, that certainly being because like I would argue, see, my argument would be, yes, maybe it's the advent of reality TV, but also go back and watch the quiz shows from the 50s and 60s. Sure. Go watch the movie. Go watch the movie quiz show. Sure, sure. Great movie quiz show. Or even, I mean, Frank, like that there's yeah. a reality TV element to that stuff, too. So it was always yeah. a part of TV from the advent of TV. But like, surely, yes, full narratives, right, in which there was, quote unquote, cinema verite, yeah. you know, as much as I mean, look, the title itself and obviously Pacini you know, and Berman know what they're doing is, is a, is a, is a T is a, is a twist and a, and a fallacy of course in itself. Cause it's not cinema verite. Right. right? And, and of course the, of course, from Nanook of the North onward, right. And you don't want to get too film school here. The cinema verite is, is I would argue basically impossible i mean the idea of an objective narrative take is like base i mean you know closed circuit security camera footage that's unedited right i was i was gonna say you could go to like a live stream of an eagle's nest or something and that's cinema verite you know what i mean like um but i mean and look we're seeing i mean not to get too heavy but we see it in live time now in real life with body camps like there's no you know the idea of cinema verite right you know you know which literally means right truth in cinema right to some degree right like there you can get close right frederick why frederick wiseman movies perhaps or you know get yeah. close where he's literally like but i mean wiseman himself would tell you and he has said versions of this and you know some of his interviews like you know he's trying to find the truth but certainly there's a narrative that forms i mean you can't watch city hall or you know at berkeley or any of his any of his amazing titica follies right which is perhaps still his most famous one you know where there is an agenda that forms i mean as as, as objective as he can be he is still a filmmaker a storyteller editing making choices right like the minute you're making a choice right right it's, the it's, out, the, it's out the window part technically of it, right the, you know and for those who don't know nanook of the north by robert flaherty was kind of this groundbreaking quote-unquote documentary from i believe the 20s right and it was like footage from you know alaska or even more north of that and it was like oh you know inuits uh, yeah. eskimos as they were called you know like doing stuff right what what have you right but then you know to know flaherty and to learn what he did is he he staged all of that yeah. like those people were real in that they lived there but all the stuff they did was like half real and he like forced the drama the, of the situation you have know, you so seen a, a, have you seen the documentary now episode on nanica the north i have not I have oh not, it's no. uh, yeah just whatever and the listener watch it if you haven't i mean you almost don't even need to what dan just said about nanica the north is almost all you would need to know about it in order to get the context of the documentary now episode but it's so 
it's all about that and it's it's perfect it's so good the the, you know and, and going back to like you know do they have a you know like you were talking about connor their their thematics things certainly kind of have a through line and even you could point to like nanny diaries and things heard and seen there's an element there of like being a young woman and reckoning with you know the next stage and what that means in totally different tonal sure. ways of yeah. course <clears throat> yeah but i think the other thing we didn't really get into this because i think they've talked about this and so i didn't really want to uh, frankly we, we were getting in more interesting directions but they work in mixed media and in, in kind of uh, you know um like those elements you know which you know if you watch american splendor if you watch the nanny diaries even uh if you watch um Cinema Verite does it a little bit too. Cause Cinema he, Verite yeah. does it. Um, and even things heard and seen, not as much, but there's a research element to the picture where you have Amanda Seyfried's character going to the local library, like pulling up the old clips, um, you know, like doing old versions of research that most people would go on their computer, but she's kind of forced to go into old, like account logs that are only available that way because she's in this, this small town called chosen, you know, where like that stuff hasn't been digitized, right? Like something mm. like that there is an element of like research and documentarianism in a lot of their films that feels very natural, natural because they started out as documentarians. So I like that as a style that kind of pervades most of their work, though they would tell you, right. And the extra man is an example, right. You know, the extra man, doesn't have a whole lot of that and some of their movies don't obviously so it kind of depends on on the content um no the most the most you even get frankly if you wanted to try and thread that needle is like the most you get with extra man is you have the objective narrator right like to that that sort of ties it together but speaking of extra man to kind of pivot and i just to dovetail it with cinema cinema verite a little bit one of the things i loved about cinema verite is you know, they do this thing and it's the reason I think the performances in it, particularly like the 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 loud family performances in it are so great is because their performances on top of performances. You know, they're they They are actors playing real people who are trying to be themselves, but can't help but put on somewhat of a performance in front of a camera. It's like this weird three, four layered thing. That I think is really fascinating. You really see it most with Tim Robbins. Uh, who, I love. I was gonna say, yeah, who does I love, a great I love, job. I love the first time he, encou- he encounters the cameras yeah. in, in the movie <laughs> at he's the airport. Like, yeah. yeah, he's like, he says it finally. He's like, oh, can I take it to lunch? And then he turns to the camera. He's like, you guys hungry? And they're like, no, no, we can't talk to you. And he's like, and he goes, oh, sorry. He's like, cut. <laughs> yeah, he's take two. Um, no, yeah, it's it's two. it's really great because it's it's this and that. Not to spoil because I do. You know, you can find the movie. It's on HBO. Um, you should watch it. There is a moment in basically the what is the emotional climax of the movie where he is wearing all sorts of layers of what I'm talking about in terms of like performing for a camera, absorbing things in real life uh, whilst it. I don't know. It's 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 a really both he and Diane Lane kind of do those things that are I, I was uh, in awe of while watching uh, truly great performances. But that said, it's an interesting thing because and maybe i was just thinking these because i watched them literally right back to back but the extra man 
has that as well, right? Where you have, and we spoke about it a little bit with them, but you have this man who wants to be a young gentleman, is thinking maybe he wants to transition, but might just be a cross dresser. Like it's, and he's like trying to figure out his identity in that regard. So there's this, there's this navigation of how to perform and when to perform, um, in this kind of high society, uh, New York environment that I think is really fascinating. And you kind of, you set that against the, you know, Kevin Klein, uh, Henry, Har- Henry Harrison, right? Is that his name? Henry Harrison. Yeah, yep. yeah. The Henry Harrison character who, you know, who has seemingly just has it all figured out and can to some degree switch it on at a moment's notice. It, and it's what I love about the Kevin Klein performances in that movie is that like he's either switching it on at a moment's notice or you get and as the movie goes on, you get the like the idea that like, oh, has is he just like trapped in it now where he is performing this bit all the time yeah and it's a perfect it's a perfect role for kevin klein who i think for a lot of his we have career, to do we have to do a klein episode at some I know, point he's we've been so talking many, about, we, we've been talking about him so much that like i know we'll have and to like even like in so much like like the january man is such a weird movie we were actually feel like we mentioned i love you to death i feel like i mentioned recently it's such an interesting movie but point is, he's, I feel like, one of our last um, extroverted actors in a lot of ways. Like, so much of acting these days is very, you know, new Hollywood inspired where you have a, it's a lot of inward acting. It's a lot of brooding. You know, it's a lot of internalizing, mm-hmm. which I think is great. It can be great. It is great. But you I still do have miss... like your Stanley Tucci's though, who are but but again, yeah. But two, two, well, I guess Tucci is a master because he can do kind of anything. Yeah, which I, guess, yeah. I suppose the thing about Klein is he's very theatrical. Is my point? And yes, like, yeah. I love that about Klein. He's our. I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know that I think there's a better living actor. If I <laughs> gun to my head, gun, gun to my head. I mean, you know, the Denzels, sure. That's Leo, a, I was like, going to say that's an interesting pick. I like I I would be willing to hear the argument for sure. <laughs> I just I just I, I so often when I revisit his movies or, or watch a movie of his for the first time, what have you, I find myself thinking like, wow, I just the thing that he's doing, I just don't know how many other people can do the thing that he's doing, right? From like Pirates of Penzance, right, which is like one of his first roles, and he was in the show on Broadway, right? and then he mm-hmm. he did the film adaptation. I think it's like his second role because Sophie's Choice is his first film role, which is insane. And like Sophie's Choice, even he, you know, is such an incredibly complex performance. If you've seen that that film directed by Pakula, you know who's the best is like so much in the 80s and 90s he's doing so many different things and then like he wins his oscar for one maybe of the, the uh, maybe the funniest performance ever, ever yeah, given for like one right? of the like, best comedic like, performances ever put to film so so it's just yeah. uh, you know quite incredible so anyway the point is the extra man the fact that they were able to get this very nuanced performance that at once feels like a new like limit for Klein and mm-hmm. also a culmination of everything he's done before at the same time is so impressive. And whether or not you get on the same wavelength of the movie, which they themselves admit might be hard to do. And I totally understand it because there's a lot of different things. That performance alone is worth the price of admission for 100%. sure. And then, you know, 
Hollywood. Yeah, the only the only other thing I wanted to say um, is an interesting thing that we didn't really get to talk about with with uh, with uh, with Sherry and Robert, but Craig Gilbert, who's who Gandolfini is playing in Cinema Verite, mm-hmm. who was the documentarian making an American Family. That was the last movie he made. Yeah, what the the fallout and aftermath of that show. Uh, really soured him and he and he he lived out his life in manhattan and never made another movie and the whole experience really rubbed him the wrong way and i don't believe he helped you know he was still alive i believe when cinema verite was getting made Mm. um yeah he only just died as a matter of fact i'm looking right now he only just died last year in april and i just think he didn't want to revisit any of it and it's just an interesting thing of Tapping into those real things, it was as you know, real as the, you know, they only may be half real. Like we talked about, there's manufacturing stuff happening, but like tapping, tap, tapping into real people. I mean, it can be a very touchy thing, and I think one of the things, and this is kind of we can approach our end here. Talking with Sherry Springer Bourbon and Robert Vlachini, they're positive grace and attitude and like just general kindness that pervaded that conversation was very uplifting and nice to see because you know this is an industry of intensity and you know as we read about constantly i feel like and appropriately and things need to be you know said and we talk about weinstein a bit of course in the the interview and then the scott rudin of it all happening now and, and whatnot there's plenty of meanness and i think I certainly hope in this age of Ted Lasso, if I may, there the kindness comes back to the fore. And that's where you get the Sherry Springer Bermans and Robert Bocchini's. And I hope that they continue to make these movies. It seems like they have things cooking, right? Hopefully people watch things heard and seen, right? I'm rooting for them is my point. Yeah, it sounds like they'll also have uh, – it sounds like more episodes of Succession in uh, in store. For when that uh, returns, I suppose. Yeah, I, it looked like it seemed like they were getting ready to direct. I even saw on Twitter, uh, Lorraine Schaferia, uh, director of Hustlers, is currently directing an episode. So hopefully, it's a good lineup for season two or season three, I guess, of uh, Succession. Um, and that's it, man. Thanks for listening. These have been great. I'm so happy we're able to talk to these talented people. It's really, it feels like it adds an extra thing element dimension to our podcast. And it's been so amazing to, to kind of, to have that be a thing. So I hope we can continue it. And at the same time, continue to talk to our, to our, our very talented friends and critics and writers as well. Um, no, we've moved, we've moved on from that, Dan. We're, we're at another yeah, level. Yeah. You know what? Now. Yeah. Never mind. No. We're cooler. We're cooler than them now. <laughs> it's only directors and movie stars. <laughs> um, before uh yeah before i wrap it up dan where can people find you they can find me uh so if you're in pittsburgh and you take the exit <laughs> there's the tunnel what's the name of the tunnel? you know it's funny i was trying to do a bit and i can't even think about the tunnel. I, I think you've done a bit before and i kind of like <laughs> yeah, it but every not, time but not but not the bit of like the specific directions like out of the city of Pittsburgh. like I'm the keep, liberty I, i'm the, keeping it in <laughs> the liberty tunnel is not the tunnel but i always get confused because i always think of jack reacher in the liberty tunnel anyway right um they can find me on twitter dj mecca 
uh you read my review of things heard and seen uh like i like i mentioned before um other stuff coming up obviously uh, other exciting episodes of the show coming up at fathom stories um has we have a new uh uh story that should be out now if not now if you're listening any day now um the discovery of the body uh, as opposed to the disposal of a body which is cool and i'll throw it back to you Tom. Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFS B-Side. Uh, as Dan mentioned, uh, Things Heard and Seen is now on Netflix as you are reading this. So um, if you enjoyed our conversation, if you, uh, if you liked uh, Sherry and Robert's other films, feel, and even if you didn't, go ahead and check it out. Um and other than that, uh, we have some fun stuff coming up. Um, obviously, we uh, we always have some cinephile game nights in the works, so be sure to check those out. And as well, uh, we our next episode we have with uh, a fellow we like a lot, the lovely Blake Howard from uh, One Heat Minute and and other such productions. You can catch all the stuff he's doing for Zodiac Chronicles. Um, we were lucky enough to talk to him about the films of Alan J. Pakula. So uh, that will be our next episode dropping. So after you've listened to this one, keep keep an ear and an eye out for that. Uh, generally, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe. And, uh, you know, wherever you are listening and you can uh, shoot us any questions or comments or concerns uh, at b-side at the film um and that's about it thank you for listening everybody and uh and a, a very special thank you to uh sherry springer berman and robert pulcini we wish you all the success and happiness in the world which you rightly deserve mm-hmm.